That's our call for you today, if you have not done so, and that will be our call again in the passage. That was the call of Jesus, the last public call last week that we looked at in the end of John chapter 12, and we still call to all that are with the sound of my voice to turn to Jesus. Also, practically speaking, you can turn to John 13, turn to John 13 this morning as we start a new chapter. Jesus' public ministry is basically done at this point, and now all of a sudden we are in the book of John, we are quickly moved to the event on the upper room, many times called the Last Supper. Maybe you think of that painting that was done hundreds of years ago. Um, and it, it looked a lot different than that painting, I should point out. Okay. For first of all, in, involved with this, there wasn't any seating or sitting at the table. Uh, people reclined at the table for eating. I know that sounds strange to us, but at this time it wasn't strange for us to have pulled up a chair to the table. Well, it would have been impossible, actually, by the way, that they, they ate back then. Um, but there would have been a small type of platform where the food um, was presented. And the men in particular would, the disciples would be reclining with their head kind of propped up by an elbow or whatever. So literally, as the synoptics, which again are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, give us much more details than John does. But John, on the other hand, the Gospel of John, gives us much more of the teaching of Jesus to his disciples at this point. So it is certainly rich, and we're going to benefit from this because Jesus' teaching to his disciples is his teaching also directly to us and much that we need to know. But they would have been um, reclining, propped up their heads. And that when, when it talks about John, the Apostle John, being next to Jesus, close to his chest, where it says here that laid at his breast in that area, it would have been because he was leaning up and they would have been reclining. And it makes a lot more sense um, about how John could have been that close in proximity to, to Christ. All this is taking place. It does seem as if John has jumped right in. Um, the disciples have arrived. A point to mention here, the normal custom when people would enter a place at this time, uh, remember they wore sandals. And so if, you, if you've ever wore sandals a lot this summer, you probably notice that your feet get a little more dirty, a little stinkier. And so uh, you might come back and think, I need, to, yeah, I need to wash my feet, you know, even before I get any further. Well, that was certainly the case with people that wore sandals all the time in this culture, that they had dirty feet a lot. And so as you entered in, you couldn't really the, the, the sign, take off your shoes while you walk around. That wouldn't have helped too much. So they would have washed their feet as they would have come in. A servant would have come. And this was a menial task, a servant that was not dressed in, in nice clothes, probably had his outer garments removed, um, except for some basic undergarments and things. And that servant then would have washed uh, the feet of the guests. That did not happen at this time. And Jesus has a purpose for that, as we're going to see um, here in just a few minutes. But we're in the middle of the Last Supper when we enter into um, this narrative that John has for us. And we're going to see that Jesus' 
knows many things, and he has some specific intentions for these disciples, things that they must know, things that they must understand in order to keep them through the the awful but so important events that are about to take place in the next few days. They are going to need to understand Jesus' example and his teaching about the cleansing of servants. And so let's just skip ahead, although we're going to start at verse 1, before prayer here. Verse 12. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. The cleansing of servants. Lord, let us understand, give us understanding in this as Jesus has important information to relay to his disciples, to his followers, to these specifically, the 12, the inner circle. And yet we're going to find out even today that one of these is against him, even in this inner circle. But at the same time, as he speaks to these disciples, that the Apostle John has recorded his teaching for us who are his followers today, that believe in faith and follow after Jesus. And so let us be encouraged, but also exhorted to follow the example of Jesus Christ and help us specifically to understand the example and understand what Jesus is asking us to do in these words and this narrative that we look at today. That we, through the cleansing that we have received through him, might proclaim him to others and humble ourselves and do the work of a servant until Jesus returns. So in this, we ask in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We're going to see Jesus brings cleansing to his followers. This is the what's called the Last Supper in the upper room between Jesus and his disciples. You know, and with scholars today, when, when we talk about calendars and history and timelines, it's really hard. It's somewhat easier to um, explain the timing of events that have happened in the past 100, 200, 300 years, because we all follow the same time, still the same kind of calendar. But back in the time of Bible times, there was a different calendar, and there was even, it seems, a different recognition whether you were in the northern, the Judean area, or whether you were of the Sadducees or of the the priestly council in Jerusalem, they even had a different way that they recognized when the day started, believe it or not. Um, And so there's a lot of dispute with scholars today about the timing of events of what we call the Passion Week, of what happened during this week and when it actually happened. Now, we're not going to even get into all that today because I've noticed that And I've seen good men who have kind of pastors who have gotten into this and they've gotten really excited and they share all their information. By the time they're done, people are exhausted and don't have time, really mental capacity to listen to the rest of the message. So if this whole idea of the timing and the dates and when this happened really appeals to you, we can talk all you want after the service. But here's 
what I think it's best to see this meal as a true Passover meal. This was a Passover meal that took place on a Thursday evening with Jesus and his disciples. And I base that on their Judean observance of the days beginning at sunrise. Now, if you want to get into that more, we'll talk afterwards. But that's basically the idea here. Think along those lines. They're enjoying this dinner together. And Jesus, it is shown here, has full knowledge of the significance of the next few days. And he is going to purposely and intentionally conduct himself in a manner to make full advantage of his final teachings to his disciples. He wants to leave them with some specific images and information to help them as they go through. They have no idea, right, folks, what they're about ready to go through. But none of this is going to take Jesus by surprise. Even as John points out here, he's going to use this word knows that Jesus knew, and he knew what was going to happen. And he knew that it was time for his hour had come and through his sacrifice that he would bring cleansing to his followers. But we see here in the first five verses, Jesus knows his ministry mission. He knows the details. And John is making that clear to us. Nothing takes him by surprise here. And so he wants his disciples prepared. The events of the next day would would still cause them to scatter, right? We're going to see that. But they come back together, don't they, at some point? And really, they cling together, and it's based on what he would tell them at this time, and they would remember that. And the Holy Spirit would eventually give them further understanding as well of these important events and the teaching that Jesus is giving them. So verse 1, now before the feast of the Passover, again, this supper, I, I believe, takes place on is the Passover, but it's saying before the Passover, Jesus already knew that his hour was come. He knew what was going to happen ahead of time. And what is going to happen? Here's his mission, that he should depart out of the world under the Father, having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. Interesting that I should, I should mention this as well. I didn't have time uh, when we talked about Jesus entering in Jerusalem, um, what's called the triumphal entry. Did you realize that Jesus entered in on a Monday on that Passover week? And that Monday was the day where, as people came in, the lamb was selected for the sacrifice that would be offered for the sins of the people. So do you realize on that Monday that as Jesus came in, he was also presenting himself as the lamb that was to atone for sin. He had a unique knowledge. And it says here, he knew that his hour was come when he should depart out of this world. He's intentional on what he wants to do here and accomplish from the moment of his departure of this world to go to the Father. And he'll mention that again later on. He will go to the Father after his sacrifice, but he will be resurrected. He'll appear to them again, and he'll ascend to his Father. But this is beautiful at the end of verse 1. Having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And it points out that Jesus had a perfect love for these people, for his disciples. And folks, he has a perfect love for us today that follow him. This is a love that's pointed out for his followers. And Jesus had a responsibility to them to love them 
uh, of his own, those that have chosen him, that were following him, they were his own in this world, in his earthly ministry, and he was going to love them until the very end of his time on earth. And of course, this also, this doesn't mean that his love ended at that time. He continues to love today his followers. But it points out, even through all the things that, in irritations, right? You think Peter was an easy one to love? We're going to see here again. Outspoken, just says whatever comes to his mind, and there's a beauty in that. But you guys know somebody like that traveling with them on a day-to-day basis, you would start to get a little annoyed and irritated at that kind of personality. And the others always wrangling and fighting. We find out in the synoptics that even at the Last Supper, they're still worried and arguing about that old tired issue about who's the greatest. It's even embarrassing that disciples would be arguing about that, but they are. And Jesus and his example here is going to totally embarrass them by arguing over that. But we understand when we're around certain people all the time that tend to get on our nerves, it really is hard to love them. We have to remember God's promises and, okay, Lord, give me a love for that individual. But, folks, sooner or later, we're all irritating. We all have weaknesses that frustrate each other. And understand this, that Jesus doesn't lessen his love for you based on your weakness. He loved these disciples, not because they did everything perfectly. They did a lot of things. Really probably made him groan on the inside, certainly did. But he loved them until the end. And he will love you until the end of your life, until he returns. And he'll continue to love us throughout all eternity. Jesus' love for you in this verse His love for his own followers should be an encouragement to us. That alone should motivate us to want to serve him and testify of him. He will love us until the end and for all eternity. So because of that love, he has some things again that he wants to portray to them. And supper being ended, the devil now having put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Yes, Jesus even had love for the one that would betray him. Amazing. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God or was going back to God, he's about to do some things because of his knowledge. And notice here that it talks about Judas Iscariot and the fact the devil has now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot What this means, folks, tragically and soberingly, is that Judas is now a fully committed tool of Satan to betray Christ. And let's, uh, in a minute here, I want to highlight still what Jesus is going to do for Judas, even knowing that. And Jesus knew, by the way, that it was Judas and that Judas would betray him. He knew all of this. He he has knowledge of everything that's going to happen. He knows his goal and his ministry mission in all this. John continues to highlight the fact nothing will take him by surprise. He knows his father's will. Um, That's verse three, that the father had given all things into his hands. And also, you know what that means? That he has also given him all power to act. What's remarkable is how does Jesus use that power? He's about ready to use that power to wash feet and then offer himself up as a sacrifice. The power 
of the Almighty God. And that's what he's going to do with it. Amazing in this picture. The Father had given all things into his hands. He knew that he had started this mission, the mission that God had given to him, and he knew that soon all of what was going to happen, his sacrifice, his resurrection, his ascension, that he was going back to God. All of this was no surprise. He'd been sent by God for this mission, and he would return to him triumphant. Mission accomplished, successful. But there were some things that needed to be done. So what does he do? He rises from supper and laid aside his outer garments. Remember, their feet hadn't been washed yet, and maybe they were kind of wondering, did Jesus kind of forget that? You know, this is a standard thing. You would expect that your feet are going to be washed, but Jesus was waiting for a more significant moment here so that they would remember this. And he laid aside his outer garments, and he's basically taking the look of a servant and took a towel and girded himself, or he tied it around his waist. This would have been a very long towel, um, as well, that he would have been able to use to wipe and clean their feet. I imagine, I'm just imagining their expression as he does this, and them knowing particularly what he's doing. They had to have been appalled as he gets ready. And after that, he poureth water into a basin, into a container there, some sort of bowl or basin, and he begins to wash the disciples' feet as a lowly servant and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded or that had wrapped around him. See, it had to be long enough for him to be able to do that, right? And I'm sure that they, all of them were appalled. But Peter, as again, the leader of the group and the most um, boisterous, he's the one that voices their concern. Um, and remember, again, don't forget that they've just been having an argument again about who's the greatest. And Jesus, this is his greatest response to that, right? Can you imagine these disciples? I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. I'm sitting next to him. And I, I hope that John, the beloved disciple, wasn't arguing in this way. We don't know. But for Jesus then to get down and act and be um, um, conducting himself as a lowly servant, that had to have quieted their argument at that point. What is he doing? And Jesus in this action, because he knew what his ministry goal was, he will provide, he's going to give a picture that he will provide complete cleansing through his sacrificial death. But Peter's appalled here. And then cometh he to Simon Peter. And Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Or you can't do this. Where's the servant? Where's the person that's supposed to be doing this? This is menial labor. You're our master. And it really, to, to be fair, this was not something that the Lord, the master, the teacher was supposed to be doing. It was against cultural norms. This was actually, um, it was something that was inappropriate for a leader to do. This was the job of the servant. And so in, this, in, in the disciples' minds, Jesus is being inappropriate. This is not something that the, that the master does. This is above his station, above what he should do. Peter's appalled, but Jesus explains, and Jesus answered and said unto him, what I do thou knowest or understandeth not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. You shall understand afterwards. <clears throat> Jesus says, um, Peter, this is going to be hard for you to understand right now what I'm doing. I know this looks strange, but you remember this and you will have understanding. 
And what is he ultimately referring to? There would come a point where the spirit would come and provide them the understanding that they would need of this very action of all that Jesus would teach them. He would understand more later. I was thinking uh, about in relation to 9-11 and this idea of Jesus knowing everything that was going to happen and his acting on what he, on his perfect knowledge, right? I couldn't help myself yesterday. I was watching one of the documentaries of, of 9-11. I'm just always drawn to that. And I only really like to watch them once about this time of year because really they're so emotional and so tragic that my spirit can't take watching them any other time of year. But I do sometimes watch some of the events that took place. And there was one man that was giving his account of how he was in the Northern Tower. And I think he was in the middle um, section and one of the middle um, floors, not too far from where the first plane hit the tower. And he was giving some sort of recruitment presentation. Um, and also it was some new employee thing that they were working through, talking through. And the first plane hit, and there was that rush of air that came through on their floor. And he said, papers were going all over the place. And one paper just kind of um, levitated there right in front of his face. He remembered noticing that it was one of the employees' resumes just kind of there. And then went out. They quickly tried the best they could to find the stairway. And as they're going down the stairway, everybody's in a panic. He's in a panic. Nobody knew what had happened, right? And we understand this looking back, thinking it just mar- it really blows us away in our minds. How could, how could somebody even go through that? How could you even process that? And that was a struggle that this employer had trying to figure out what's going on. The lower they got, they started encountering, encountering the firemen that were going up the stairs. They didn't know this at this point, but these firemen they would never see again. They would lose their lives in sacrifice trying to help others. But he said what stood out to this one firefighter in particular, as he went by, he looked into his eyes and he said, that man knew what he was about to do. He knew what he needed to do. And he understood the consequences and the weight of what he was about to do. And it stood out in contrast to him because he had no idea what to do. But the man that passed him, knew totally what he was about ready to do. That's a good picture here of Jesus. These disciples have no idea about what's ready to happen. They're trying to figure, what are you doing, Jesus? But Jesus has a perfect knowledge, and he is intentional on this symbolism. And he says, you'll understand at some point, Peter. So just kind of the idea of just go with it. Just trust me. But we're talking about Peter here, right? In verse 8, Peter saith unto him, Oh, thou shalt never wash my feet. Notice how Peter's kind of trying to take control of this thing. He won't let the master have control. The very problem that he has with all this, you're the master, you can't be doing this. Well, then, Peter, why are you trying to take control of this whole thing and tell the master what to do? But, master, you can't do this. It's totally inappropriate. Telling Jesus what's inappropriate, by the way. And Jesus answered in that gentle way, you know, he just, Peter's straight up with him. Jesus is straight up with Peter. And he says, Peter, if I wash thee not, thou hast no part or no share with me. What does he mean here? 
And there is a picture here that we're going to talk about here in just a minute that I think we miss. We get at what Jesus is going to explain to us in verses 12 through 20 about the humility in his humble servant's heart toward his folks, toward his followers. We understand that aspect in this foot washing um, event. But I think there's, there's something else here that sometimes we miss that's even more important in a lot of regards. And it's what Jesus is going to do for his followers in this that's pictured here. And what's pictured here is the cleansing that Jesus is about ready to provide. This is a symbol of that. This foot washing, of course, doesn't equate to sin being cleansed. But Jesus is saying, I am about ready to give my life so that you can be thoroughly cleansed. And Peter, you need to be submitted to what I'm going to do in the way that I want to do it, or you have no share with me. You cannot have a share in the blessings, in the ministry that I'm about ready to give you. You have to do it my way, Peter. And you have to be cleansed. And Peter's going to struggle with that. And Peter, again, now that he understands this, and he's probably thinking, wow, okay, I'm going to miss out on the blessings. And Jesus is going um, going to inaugurate his kingdom very soon. And I don't want to miss out on that. So let's swing the opposite way, right? This is Peter. He's either one way or the other. He's all in one way. He's adamant about Jesus not washing his feet. And now in the throes of extreme exuberance, he says, okay, Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head. And what is Peter really doing here? He's still trying to take control. Okay. Okay. Then the foot washing is not enough, Lord. You need to do the rest of me too. Let me just help you out. And just Peter just doesn't, he struggles. But again, he's voicing what all these other disciples are thinking. He's just bold enough to say it. And sometimes it's just a little better, folks, just to, in in a kind way, but to to discuss and to just let people know, certainly let the Lord know what you're thinking and what's going on in your heart. He knows. And um, Peter does that. Lord, I, I want a part in whatever you're doing here. So wash my hands, my head as well. And Jesus points out, no, Peter, you misunderstand again. Jesus saith unto him, he that is washed needeth not save except to wash his feet, but is clean every whit or completely. And ye are clean, but not all or every one of you. What is Jesus saying here? It's not needed in the symbol here for him to wash hands and feet. Because this isn't the actual cleansing, right? This is a symbol of that. And it's an important symbol that we shouldn't miss. Jesus will be able to thoroughly cleanse us of our sin, but that will come in his atoning death on the cross. But the foot washing here, I think what Jesus is pointing to, why does he say, he that is washed needeth not save except to wash his feet, but is clean completely? I think points to two things. Number one, I think Jesus is saying, no, the intent of what I'm doing with your feet is enough, Peter, to to get the point across that I will provide cleansing. I don't need to do any more than that. I don't need to be any more extravagant. This symbol is enough. But I think there's something else here, too. That is, Jesus is 
symbolizing the cleansing, the complete cleansing that will, he will provide for those that put their faith and trust, that will follow after him through his death. He's also saying, for my followers in the future, you will need cleansing, but in a, in a different way. You won't need a full, complete cleansing, but a relational cleansing, like your feet being washed. For the sins that we commit as believers, that doesn't separate us from our eternal destination. We're still God's children. But when we sin, folks, sin does get in the way of our relationship with God. We move away from God, and we need to confess that sin in our lives and experience that closeness. And so I think that is being symbolized here as well, that these disciples make sure that when they experience that full cleansing that Jesus will provide, that in their relationship with Jesus, that they keep short accounts of their sin, to have that close relational experience. And what is more close and relational than a picture of your master washing your feet? Amazing. In his humility here. And um, in the depth of, of what he's talking about. And so an important symbol about the close communion that we can have with Jesus and rejoice in the cleansing that he provides for our sin. We understand that when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we have complete cleansing of our sin. But relationally, there's always that need to ask for forgiveness so that we can stay in close communion with him. That's reflected in this as well. But even as he's washing these disciples' feet, he says, "Ye are clean. They are true followers, but one out of the 12. There is that man named Judas. And he says, not every one of you are completely clean. What does he mean here? Judas was the betrayer. He would not receive, he would not receive the inward cleansing because he would reject Jesus and forego spiritual cleansing. But folks, do you realize that Jesus washed his feet too? That's implied in this. Why did he even do that? He knew that Judas was going to reject him. He knew that Judas would not be spiritually cleansed. Why apply the symbol to him? Well, here's what I think. I think that even at this moment, Jesus was still pointing out to him, you could still, you could still receive my cleansing. Not too late. Here's the symbol of that. I'm going to wash your feet. But, Jesus, but Judas would totally reject it. And he would reject that cleansing. And he would go into spiritual darkness for all eternity. Sobering to think that one that had been with Jesus for three years of ministry, that had um, traveled with him, that had been together 24 hours a day, seven days a week, or whatever it was back then in the calendar, that he could betray and reject Jesus in the end. Folks, it's a reminder to us too. As long as we, maybe you've been churchgoers or been members of a church or um, have given testimony to being of a Christian, you can give testimony that you've been a Christian for years. You may have been a faithful church member for years, and that still doesn't mean that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. In the end, we need to make sure that we have that true relationship. Faith. Are you depending on him in faith? Is it real? For Judas, it's not real. And now he has his own intentions, and he's being used as a tool of Satan. 
So an application, as we're studying God's word, do we let God's word, do we let the Holy Spirit uh, explain to us what God's word means? Do we um, submit ourselves to the scriptures as God has given them to us? Or do we try to talk God out of what he wants us to do? No, Lord, I think, I think you really want me to do this. Or I think this passage really says this when in, in actuality, the Holy Spirit is making it clear as we, as we read scripture and as we go through our Christian walk. No, God really wants you to consider this. He really means this from his message and not like Peter to try to tell God what you think he ought to do to submit to that. And also at the same time, folks, again, check your heart. Trust Jesus while you have opportunity before you lose that opportunity like Judas would. Well, Jesus provides cleansing, but he also provides an example to his followers. And we have that in verse 12. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his or put on his outer garment, he was set down again. And he said unto them, know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me master or teacher and Lord. And ye say, well, you're right in doing that. For so I am. He gets dressed again and begins to explain further about what he has done. He's emphasized his cleansing. And now he's going to emphasize what they need to do. His, and again, you know, it really follows what we talked about this morning in Sunday school. Jesus and his work that provides us what we need to then faithfully serve him. Both aspects are here. He freely admits, yes, I'm your teacher and Lord. You are right to call me that. That is a right thing to do. But that means if you're truly calling me teacher and Lord, unlike Judas, if you're truly doing that, then you have a responsibility. You're committing to follow my example. I then, your Lord and master, you've called me Lord, you've called me master. Will you follow my example? I have washed your feet you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. And so not here is Jesus saying, well, what I want you to do is um, in, in the future meetings together and future of the church as you get together, that you need to have this ceremonial foot washing every time you meet. Now, there are some um, obscure churches today, I think they still practice this, and they miss the whole point of it. It's not that his followers need to be uh, washing feet all the time, but they need to humbly submit to whatever God would ask them to do and not cling to their own rights. Oh, I can't do that. That's beneath me. And Jesus says, no, you can't say that. Because if I'm willing to wash your feet, then there should be nothing that you look at as beneath what you should do, because that would mean you're more important than the master. And that's not true, because you've called me master and Lord. So be willing to do whatever I call you to do to serve others, even if it's humbling, even if it takes sacrifice, even if it takes of your time, be willing to humble yourself and serve others in the way that I have just served you. He has more to say, verse 16. Truly, truly, that's what verily, verily means. So that means he's really, again, he wants them to zero in on what he's saying. Pay attention to me. I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord or master. Neither he that is sent or a messenger. This really is the word for apostle. One of the few times it's used in the gospels. Neither 
the apostle, an apostle, and it, it is used in a broader uh, sense of all of God's followers being apostles. It's one of the few times the word apostle is used in a broader sense. For the followers of Jesus, the messengers, the messenger, the servant is not greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy or really blessed are ye if you do them. So a servant should not expect greater ease or privileges than his master. That makes sense, right? He doesn't deserve higher consideration than the one he serves, but he faithfully serves knowing that he will receive blessings from his father. One commentator said this, no emissary has the right to think that he is exempt from tasks cheerfully undertaken by the one who sent him, and no slave has the right to judge any menial task beneath him after his master has already performed it. Are we willing to submit ourselves and to do whatever Jesus would ask us to do as his followers today? Are we willing to do that? Um, Reminds me of our dog, Ellie. You know, when it got hot this summer, she normally has a, a, a cage that she's had since she was a puppy. We actually got her in it. They gave it to us. And she fits comfortably in that cage. She's comfortable at night. And even as she's gotten older, and a little larger at this point. She still fits comfortably in there, and we put her in there at night, and as she curls up, she seems to be doing great. But this summer, it got particularly hot, and we don't have, you know, the air conditioning, obviously central air in the older house that we're in, its units. And so our bedroom was a lot cooler because of the air conditioning unit there. And we figured, you know, I know she's a dog, but she probably still would have the tendency to get warm or hot. So we'll just let her up in our room for these nights where it gets really hot and she was appreciative of that she didn't actually tell us thank you but she was appreciative of it she showed it in the fact that she really enjoyed it in fact I could hear her at night moving around and she would change positions in the room and she would move to this position this position it's like oh this feels even better and she would roll around and was like this this dog is really enjoying this cool air obviously um but then it you know it cooled down to the point where we didn't need to do that And it wasn't her right to be in our bedroom all the time. She had her own bed. We had our own bed. And as the master has their own bed, so she should be willing to um, be satisfied with her bed. Well, she wasn't. And she's a very smart dog in a lot of ways. And so the first time we told her to get, she needed to go back in her cage. We would say cage and she immediately goes in. Well, this time she didn't. She just kind of looked at us like, wait upstairs she didn't point but kind of looked that way almost and said no remember remember the deal now i get to be upstairs no no in the cage she kind of got in the cage and if she's a little bit upset about being in the cage she'll stand up i'm not gonna lay down stand up well you can stand up all you want and she was fine she stayed the next day she was fast asleep when we got her up anyway what she'd start doing is she'd start after that she started sneaking uh, she knew the point where the boys were in bed and Leslie and I were busy. So she would at that point slowly go up the stairs. We'd never see her go up the stairs. She would go up into our room and I would be in my office doing something. And Leslie would call for her, expecting her to be downstairs. Ellie, Ellie. I'm like, why isn't she coming? I'm like, oh, I bet you I know. I go into our room on the other side of the bed, in the corner, kind of curled up and kind of halfway under the bed. There she is hiding, hoping that we won't catch her. Smart dog. I said, Ellie, 
and she looked up and she trudged. She went to the top of the stairs and she's like, really? Really? <laughs> and she heads down and she went to her cage. Well, there was an expectation that wasn't appropriate there for her as, as the dog and us as the master. She had her place, we had our place, and it was in the end inappropriate for her to expect more than that. I'm not trying to compare us all to dogs, folks, but it is true that if the master is willing to do something, then we shouldn't have the expectation, oh, I can't do that. Really? If the master is willing to wash feet, is there anything that we shouldn't be willing to do for him? Have the right expectations. And ultimately, folks, as we faithfully serve him, whatever he asks us to do, we will be received by God because of our relationship with Jesus and we'll be brought close to God. Jesus highlights again here at the end of this passage that there is one um, that has rejected him. Verse 18, I speak not of all of you. Not all of you are going to receive the blessing for faithful service. I know whom I have chosen. There's that sovereignty of God and salvation. I know who I've chosen. I know who are truly my servants because I chose them. And one is not. But that will fulfill scripture. As awful as Judas' betrayal is and as evil as it truly was, it was not a surprise to Jesus. And in actuality, it was fulfilled by scripture. The very scripture that Floyd read this morning. It isn't this an, an interesting tie-in with the life of David. This is a psalm of David that Jesus uses as to point out the fulfillment of Judas' betrayal. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me, has the idea of, I think, of trampled all over me, or has been very rude toward me. And it was really rude to offer to invite someone to eat bread with you, like Jesus had done with his disciples. It was unthinkable then to show ungratitude toward the host of the meal. And Judas was about ready to show the ultimate ungratitude, ingratitude, excuse me, for what Jesus was about to do for him. And the disciples would be shocked when they saw it. And that's why Jesus says, I want you to remember that I told you it was going to happen. I tell you before it takes place that when it comes to pass, you may believe that I am he, that you will not be shaken by the fact that Judas is about to betray me. But through all this, you'll remember, wait a minute, Jesus knew. That means he's Lord. That means he's in control of all of this. We don't have to fear, even through something as disappointing as this. It's what David had experienced, right? And Jesus would experience it too. All of this tied together, our, our talk about David and our Psalms in the evening kind of comes together here in a neat way. So, Verse 20, as we sum all this up, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receiveth whomsoever I send receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him who sent me. Um, Jesus basically says, I'm about ready to send you out, and don't be worried, because you will go with my approval and with my commission. And that means you will have the power and the, authority, the approval of the Father to do what I've called you to do. So remember these words and be faithful as you serve me. If you don't receive Jesus as God, as Lord God, we have not believed in him at all. 
And we need to remember that. Those who reject Jesus' messengers reject the God of heaven. But those messengers, as they do what Jesus asks them to do, he points out they will be brought close to God. They will be received by God. And in the end, folks, our purpose is to follow the pattern of Jesus faithfully till he returns and we will be received by God and we'll be blessed. So don't get tired. Don't get discouraged, but faithfully serve him till the end. Follow this example. Know that you are fully cleansed. Rejoice in that and serve Jesus faithfully. Father, thank you for these thoughts and your scriptures. Help us to take this seriously and to serve you seriously. Our theme today, we've seen the power of Christ to do that work that we need done in us, but also our responsibility to serve faithfully. Help us to do that. And Lord, if there are any here today that are still contemplating being a Judas, not calling themselves a disciple, a church member, whatever, a faithful follower, and truly not having a relationship with you, may today be the day that they put their faith and trust in Christ before it's too late. For Judas, it was too late as he went out and betrayed Christ. Let that not be said of us, but let all that hear this gospel presentation today put their faith and trust in Christ and serve him faithfully. Help us to do that and be a testimony to our community. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.